Caitlin, it's fall in New York City. You know what that means. No more hot garbage smells <laughs> on the streets. Yes. But also, um, we get to break out our plaid coats and we get to go apple picking. But also, it's you've got mail season. Um, I will admit it's been at least five years since I've seen that movie. What? Yeah. I- oh my gosh. The fall carnival, when they have their meet cute at the bookstore. I definitely wanted to own a bookstore after watching that movie. And I think it's the movie that probably most made me fall in love with New York and want to move here. Wow. So good. It's that powerful. (laughs) Well, it sounds like we should plan a You've Got Mail movie night. And I am sending you a bouquet of sharpened pencils right now. I really don't know what that means, but thank you. (laughs) From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women making our way in New York with our nose stuck in a book. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. So that scene in the bookstore when they have their meet cute and you've got mail, it also has one of my okay, favorite. Okay. They are Tom Meg Hanks Ryan and, Meg Ryan. and Tom Hanks. I know some of our listeners are going to be like, what is wrong with Caitlin that she is not familiar with the plot of You've Got Mail? Undoubtedly. But... They, they meet in a bookstore, and what's, what is the favorite movie quote? Okay, so Meg Ryan's character, Kathleen Kelly, who owns the bookstore, she starts waxing eloquent about reading as a child, and she says, when you read a book as a child, it becomes a part of your identity in a way that no other reading in your whole life does. I assume that this is a children's bookstore. Yes. Right. <laughs> You're just so annoyed that I am not familiar with the basic plot. I'm not annoyed. Um, I'm baffled. Fair, fair. I'm bewildered. That is fair. Um, I really should return to it since it is a great New York in the fall movie. But I also really love that quote. And I think that that's probably true. So when you think back to the books that you read as a child, what do you feel really shaped you as tiny Roxy? My answer is A Wrinkle in Time, which Mm -hmm. I absolutely loved as a kid. And I think one of the big reasons that I loved it, there's this scene in it where all the kids are like bouncing balls in that other world that they visit, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and they're all bouncing them in exactly the same rhythm in their driveways. And then one kid like drops it and it kind of rolls away and he's like punished for it. And I think what I just really loved about that book was its celebration of creativity and imagination and like not that everybody shouldn't be exactly the same. I continue to love it. I reread it a few years ago and I just fell in love with it all over again. What about you? What 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 book shaped Tiny Caitlin? I feel like probably a lot of the books I loved as a little girl are like commonly loved by a lot of our listeners. I 
I do remember reading through the Little House on the Prairie oh, series yes. by Laura Ingalls Wilder. Just a sense of adventure and being in a new place with your family and the trials and travails. And um, I loved the, similarly, I loved the American Girl books for Kirsten was my yeah. favorite. The Swedish immigrant, I believe in the 1800s. Um, and uh, So you like historical that- fiction. I guess I did. I don't (laughs) now. That's not like a thing that is true about me now. But I remember getting this book maybe 10 times from the library. Our house was a few hundred feet from the local library. So we'd walk over a lot. And I checked out a book called Blubber by Judy Bloom. Oh, Judy Bloom. I don't know what it was about Blubber. I liked Blubber and and other Judy Bloom (laughs) books as well. Like, I think that she really captured female adolescence mm-hmm. and really were t- was talking about it in a way that like few writers, especially children's writers were at the time. So those were some standouts. Um, did you participate in the pizza hut? Oh my gosh. Challenge? Yes, <laughs> I did. And I met my goal every month and I got that personal pan pizza. And <laughs> I am sure my parents, never want to eat at Pizza Hut again for the rest of their lives. We went so many times. Well, looking back, I I know for sure that my mom's love of books had a lot to do with my own love of books because she was a children's librarian while I was growing up. She worked as a children's librarian. That's awesome. I remember, you know, those like pull out files that would be in like old libraries Mm -hmm. like wooden Mm -hmm. file cabinets with the cards I do Do decimal system cards she had those in our house and I remember like assigning my books to the cards and like writing on them and yes what that says about me it says a lot it definitely (laughs) says a lot but definitely I I feel like I'm so grateful that my mom both my parents really like reading and books was a really core value in our home growing up. Yeah, it was for me too. And actually my mom was also a huge influence on me as a young reader because she was and still is a kindergarten teacher. And she's, Mm. you know, she's taught hundreds of kids how to read Mm -hmm. over the decades. That's, you know, for a lot of kids, kindergarten is when they first really start learning to read and they get their first books and I think it's kind of magical how how many kids she influenced and probably your mom too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it kind of sounds like our moms are experts on children's books indeed you might say that all right Roxy it really sounds like we should put on our journalist hats head out into the field and talk to the experts our moms you got it scoops grab your notepad and let's go straight to the source we're gonna learn why reading books is so formative as a child You loved them in the first season. You wanted more of them. So it's time for Karen Karen and Sharon. No, 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 no. This music is all wrong. We need something more newsy. Can we get something more newsy? We are here in rural Colorado with longtime kindergarten teacher Sharon Stone. What is your favorite part of teaching kids to read? My favorite part of teaching kids to read is that 
absolute incredible face that they have when they finally got to read a word by themselves. Whole face lights up and it's just very exciting to see that. Why do you think books and just reading in general, how does it shape small children at that age? It's crucial. It absolutely is crucial for their cognitive development, the way they think, the way they understand, the way, the way they solve problems. And of course, it increases their concentration and their discipline for sitting still and listening. And it really is important for their imagination and their creativity. And probably the most important is that, that it absolutely creates a lifelong love for reading. Did you have a favorite book as a child? One of my favorite books as I was growing up was The uh, Pokey Little Puppy. Mm. And I ended up reading that story to both my daughters over and over and over again. All and any of the little golden books were stories that my children absolutely adored. I remember those. <laughs> yes, they were very favorite stories. Thank you, Sharon. What an honor to learn from near five decades of teaching children. You've taught grandparents, parents, and their children. Yes, I have. And they've all been absolutely incredible years. I love teaching. I always will. Thank you, Roxy. And now we'll hear from my colleague, Caitlin Beatty, who is with a former children's librarian. Over to you, Caitlin. Thanks, Roxy. I'm here in Southwest Ohio with retired children's librarian and early childhood education director, E. Karen Beatty. It's good to be here. Now, Karen, what's the state of reading today? Why is reading so important for children's development? I think it starts even for some families in utero where they start reading out loud to the infant they're carrying. You know, they say children develop their language skills the more they're talked to or talked with reading those books early on and consistently, setting aside a time at night or during the day. I have Luther here during the day and we read on the couch right after he eats his lunch. And who is Luther? Oh, my grandson. Oh, and, and he's he's very um, cute, I imagine. Um, gosh, he looks so much like his Aunt Caitlin. <laughs> but anyway, one that we read right now is The Busy Little Squirrel, and the squirrel couldn't stop to play with his friends. He was so busy. So we repeat that phrase after each page. That's a book by Nancy Tafuri, one of my favorite authors and illustrators for really young children. So it goes also back to reading the same stories over and over mm -hmm. again. And I know that moms and dads say, I can't stand to read that book one more night. <laughs> And, and what was that book that you so disliked? Oh, it was like, how many trucks can a tow truck tow? <laughs> it sounds like many children's books. For anyone listening and wondering what kind of book would be good to read to my children, what, what recommendations might you have for those listeners on where to start? So any kind of a board book when they're small, uh, simple words, simple pictures, are good to start with. And then when they get to be toddlers, I really like to introduce a book that has motion in it. So pop-up books, books that have something that the child can turn or touch mm -hmm. or open, uh, a surprise book, lots of peekaboos. I particularly like simple, bold illustrations. Any specific authors that you would recommend or who are your favorites? Um... 
gosh, I have thousands of children's books and you ask me which are my favorites. I am drawn and I have always been drawn to The Snowy Day and Peter's Chair early on in the 60s when there were hardly any books written that showed a child of color. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been fascinating, Karen. I'm reminded of books that I read as a child and that you read to me. Thank you for your time today. And now back to the studio. Okay, so here's a tough question. If you could recommend three books to anyone to read to really get who you are, who Caitlin is, besides your own book, Mm -hmm. (laughs) what three books would make the cut? First, I'll start with an obscure 14th century text from a mystic named Julian of Norwich called Revelations of Divine Love. Wow. It's not very long. It is super weird. It was my first exposure to the mystical tradition within Mm -hmm. Christianity, and I just find it so beautiful and rich. The second book is a trilogy. It's called (gasps) The Lord of the Rings. I remember going into it thinking that it would be pretty boring or like a slog, Mm -hmm. but it is such an engaging plot. Mm -hmm. So many characters, so much history, so much background, so much detail. Mm -hmm. And then this third book that I thought of, which is a total pivot from the first two books I mentioned, is called She Said Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story That Helped Ignite a Movement. It is from the... New York Times investigative journalist who broke the Harvey Weinstein story back in 2017. Mm-hmm. It's I just think it's such a masterclass in what journalism can do. Mm-hmm. And that, like it's such difficult work, and um, I just find it like very aspirational. So I've blabbered on f- far <laughs> long enough. And so now our readers know you, or they know how to know you. By reading these books. Yes. So what would you say your three books to really get to know the real Roxy? What would be on your list? That it, it really is tough. Mostly tough to just narrow it down. Okay. So the first one I would say is To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. I read that for the first time in college. Um, I was an English lit major. <laughs> with, mm. mm-hmm. And so I got to read a lot. It's a fascinating book to me, but mostly in how interior the book is. Like, it's about what you would call stream of consciousness writing. The style of writing is really intriguing to me. It's like almost a spiral type of writing. Like, there's a mm. lot of just like, it's it's in people's heads, you know? So it's just a lot of the way people think. But somehow Virginia Woolf, in my mind, like captured the very different way that different people think. You know, she's writing inside the mind of the mom and that reads so differently than what she's writing inside the, mind of dad and it's Mm -hmm. it's there's no plot almost at all it's like just one afternoon basically Um, and then it like jumps ahead 30 years and it's in like one page it's very interesting to me it's very experimental kind of writing it's not for everyone but I really love it so that would be one and then um a second one I'd say is Pride and Prejudice which maybe feels super expected But I read it so many times for so many years. Like I would just sort of Mm. come back to it every year at Christmas time um, and read it again for like years and years. Do you like the BBC six hour version with Colin Firth? I like all of the versions. I really do. I love the BBC (laughs) one, but I also like the new Joe Knight one with 
Kira Knightley. Like I, I, re- I really love all of them for different reasons. But mm-hmm. Colin Firth is, I think, the platonic ideal of Mr. Darcy. Yes. The third one, also fiction, is... Oh, this is such a toss-up. Ah, okay. I'm going to go with 100 Years of Solitude. We are really different (laughs) in this regard. (laughs) I had a friend once refer to it as 100 Years of Boredom. So again, I understand it's not for everyone. It is a long book. But I, I love, again, the style of writing. I really love the magical realism like as a genre I really enjoy that and I just got Mm -hmm. lost in it and it's beautiful beautiful writing and I really do enjoy that so you revisit books favorites yeah I've read I've read Pride and Prejudice dozens of times I've read to the lighthouse at least six or seven times but I've never read 100 years of solitude again and I and I would like to I'm so impressed No, really, that's impressive. It's just no. It is. I think it's because I am so like task oriented with reading because I think there's so many books that I want to read that I I don't like don't have time to go back to my favorite. So I do think as I get older, I feel that way more. You know, like as a little kid, you watch the same movies over Mm -hmm. and over. I think maybe that's part of like as Mm -hmm. you get older, I don't rewatch movies either, and I revisit books less, but. I just pick up, especially fiction, I just pick up different things when I reread it. Right, right. All right, kids. So you have a reading list mm-hmm. already from this episode. You're going to listen. You're going to hear plenty of other reading recommendations from our guests today. But To the Lighthouse, Pride and Prejudice, and A Hundred Years of Solitude from Roxy. Revelations of Divine Love, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, and... She said, I don't remember the subtitle. That's fine. She said is good. Go check them out. Books have played a major role in both Caitlin's and my life. Um, They're characters in our story, if you will. And today's guest is also a serious book lover. I think much of Christian literature is terrible writing. No matter what kind of text you're writing, there's always characters in that text. You need to be working at how to make that character come alive and be a whole person, an actual physical, fleshly human. He is also now a published author. Dante Stewart's first book, Shoutin' in the Fire, an American Epistle, just released this week, and we're thrilled to talk to him today about his favorite pastime. Our conversation with Dante is coming right up after we give a warm shout out to the patrons who make this all possible. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. If you want to get the dope on the Pope, go to RNS. And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. Yeah, like this fan, Ed Stetzer. He tweeted out recently that our interview with Amy Grant was fascinating. He did say that we were a little bit cheesy at the beginning of that episode, but that he was all there for the Amy Grant lyrical references. Cheesy? Ugh. The truth cuts like a knife. A cheese a knife. Cheese knife. We're, I think we're, we're still doing it. We're still doing the <laughs> cheesy thing, but that's fine. You can email us your thoughts and feedback about our podcast at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh. 
I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary in a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Today's guest, Dante Stewart, is an anti-racist advocate and the author of the new book, Shoutin' in the Fire, an American Epistle. We are so excited today to have Dante Stewart on with us to talk about one of our favorite topics, books. Welcome to the show, Dante. Hey, what's up, Roxanne and Caitlin? (laughs) What's good with it? Dante, I'm always impressed by just how many books you share about online. Like every week, it's like, wow, Dante is reading a brand new book. I don't know how he does it. So that's actually my first question for you. How do you manage to read so much given all the other responsibilities in your life? Yeah, great question. I'm just constantly reading. For me, I don't think about completing a book. I don't know what I'm going to feel in any certain type of day. My shelf is full of books, like you said, but my desk is actually full of books as well. I have a devotional material stack. Uh, I have a stack that's particularly for school um, on Black literature and and theory and theology. And I have my kind of kind of literature stack that I'm working through just kind of fiction and memoir, essay collection, uh, stuff on writing and things like that. So on a practical note, I try not to read the same thing a day behind one another and say, I'll have five books that I read. And if I want to read for an hour, then, you know, that's about 10 minutes, six books or about 12 minutes uh, for five books. Wait, in one sitting, you'll like hop from book to book? Yeah. What's interesting about that is that I'm spending 10 and 12 minutes devoted particularly to this book. So every faculty, time, attention, Mm -hmm. and all of my energy is devoted to that particular book. And I can get through some good pages in 10, 12 minutes. Um, And my goal as a reader, I want to be able to read it well enough to be able to have a conversation with the author about it Mm -hmm. that is, you know, Mm -hmm. compelling that is rooted in the text and subtext and whatever I can kind of gain and glean from it. Off the top of your head, what would you say are three books you've read this year that you just can't shake? Like you're still thinking about and processing them. Oh, 100%. Easy. Too easy. Okay. Uh, Secret Lives of Church Ladies by Deisha Phil Yeah. Hands down. The Prophets by Robert Jones. Uh Uh-huh. Hands Mm. down. Um, And I'm going to get something old. Something old. Uh, Gorilla My Love by uh, Tony Cade. Yeah, but dang, okay, let me give you one more because I want to give something more theoretical. Uh, Scandalize My Name by Terion Williams. I think anybody that's talking about, you know, theology and faith and society and embodiment in black life uh, really needs to mm-hmm. read that book. But I think every Christian needs to read Disha's book, uh, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. I think it's great. Oh, it's amazing. One thing that I love about your reading habits, Dante, just based on what you share online, is how diverse your reading habits are not just in terms of the background of the author, but types of reading mm-hmm. as well. Biography, memoir, fiction, mm-hmm. nonfiction. And I'm always taken by, you're obviously a serious thinker, you're in grad school, and also you're you're reading a lot of fiction. And I think mm-hmm. fiction tends to get treated as trite or just entertainment, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. or kind of escape. Too many pastors Mm -hmm. never read any fiction. So like, I think much of Christian literature is terrible writing. 
Mm-hmm. When I say terrible writing, I'm thinking of creative writing. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many mm-hmm. Christian writers are actually thinking about the skill set of writing and, yeah. and reading as integral to a certain type of creativity and world building, you know, that I'm trying mm-hmm. to acquire. Because no matter what kind of text you're writing, there's always characters in that text. And if there's always characters in that text, whether it's you, whether it's a biblical character, whether it's the world we live in, whether it's, you know, whatever, you need to be working at how to make that character come alive and be a whole person, an actual physical, fleshly human. Mm-hmm. But not just be like a flat kind of narrative. If you're talking about a certain type of theoretical doctrinal writing, you know, it's still in some sense bound to the practices and skill sets of the ways white men have communicated mm-hmm. faith and theology. If we're thinking about inherited traditions of writing, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's just not I don't I don't know if it's very skillful in a sense of beyond the Christian pastor, scholar, mm-hmm. seminarian, etc. I think we're at a time where there's become more and more recognition that our various canons are pretty overrepresented by white people, especially white men, in basically every genre, fiction, philosophy, yeah. history, like yeah. across the theology for sure, as you said, that has really profoundly shaped our cultural mm-hmm. imagination. You're in school right now studying black literature like you've really Mm -hmm. prioritized reading black authors and a lot of black women authors how has that challenged you reshaped your own thinking about yourself and your experiences as a black man but also how you you know how you kind of view the world yeah Roxanne thank you for asking that question (laughs) that's such a great question like legit I would not be who I am or where I am without you know womanist theology and womanist practice and, and black feminisms. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking particularly about my own story with M. Sean Copeland's work and Renita Weems. Mm-hmm. So much of my, you know, immersion in the, the kind of life worlds and thinking of black women is rooted in, you know, kind of getting free of white evangelicalism. One of the major keys to our own sense of liberation, whether that be theologically, politically, socially, Psychologically, I think it will be based on our ability to integrate and take seriously the world building and the world shaping work of of, of Black women. Mm. You know, I can talk about how important Black women are to me, but there are particular ways Black women have shaped my own understanding. It's, It's around this idea of embodiment. I don't think many people have written better than Black women Mm -hmm. about embodiment, the body, uh, both as a site of divine revelation as well as a site, a critical site of the failures, both of the country and of the church. I just think that Black women have done such a honest job at telling that story. Mm-hmm. Are there specific books that you would recommend as being catalytic to your own mm-hmm. kind of awakening? Mm-hmm. What, are, what are the books for people on that kind of post-evangelical journey that have maybe been significant for you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great question. I think for me, it's, it's it goes back to you know the greats, uh, M. Sean Copeland, uh, anything by M. Sean Copeland, uh, Emily Towns, Wilda Gaffney, Renita Weems, Cheryl B. Anderson, Stacy Floyd Thomas, uh, and and it's just these traditions of Black women who have you know stood in the gap for so many of us. 
I mean, In Flesh and Freedom by M. Sean Copeland has shaped me more theologically than any book I've ever read. Okay. Mm. James Cone, in his book, um, which I would suggest everybody read, said I wasn't going to tell nobody. Everybody has to read that book. If, you t- if you're talking about, you know, faith and life and society and theology, mm. you got to read Cone's autobiographical text. Okay. Um, mm. And he talks particularly about the ways in which, you know, Black women challenge him on mm. his own ideas. This tension they are wrestling through is like, yo, y'all ideas about, you know, liberation is in some sense the resurrection of black male power that you believe have been killed, you know, by white people. Mm-hmm. So when James Cone is responding theologically, so much of his theological work, which was necessary, uh, was in some sense in response to uh, white people's terrible white supremacy you know, as it relates to their terror, their violence, but also as it relates to uh, traditions of theology mm. and faith. And then black women come along and mm-hmm. say, you know, you're doing great mm-hmm. work, but there's no body. There's no flesh within your text. I think you're totally right, Dante, that and I think this connects to your point about doing a better job of telling a story about religious meeting in America that's not just referencing white evangelicals, yes. even people who have rejected that. Oh, 100%. Like, don't, don't let them take up all the air in the room. <laughs> like they're yeah. better, fresher, more life-giving religious communities, conversations mm-hmm. that don't have anything to do with that world. Yeah. And part of our responsibility as journalists and also, you know, book editors, I would say, is to elevate conversations, authors that are doing generative and constructive work. Oh, without mm-hmm. question. If we can think about market, you know, and things like that, mm-hmm. evangelicals as a religious phenomenon hold such a large share on the cultural market mm-hmm. as it relates to what people think about public religion uh, in the country. Not only do they hold a market on public religion, but also, you know, they hold a huge market share when you're talking about production of literature, who has the infrastructure to create those type of avenues for people to be heard. So when we mm-hmm. center evangelicals for good or for ill, we're oftentimes allowing or causing other people to be invisible and disappear within that narrative. Mm-hmm. Right. What sells is this heroic, triumphalistic narrative of salvation that is still, in some sense, an assimilation to salvation narratives that still saves whiteness. Hmm. It's still about saving white people. It's still about mm-hmm. redeeming Right. What white people messed up, right. well, whether it was white mm. men, whether it was white women, uh, mm. whether it was black people, Asian, Latin Americans, uh, Hispanics, whatever, whoever aided in that project. And so who's paying your bills? Who is who is funding your literature? You know, what institutions you're tied into as an individual? You know, you may not take an, take evangelicalism to be your religious identification, but we are also social social creatures. Uh, mm. You know, so when I talk about blackness, you know, there's a certain type of black interiority uh, that is true of black people as Elizabeth Alexander would write about in her book, The Black Interior, or, you know, when you look at black memoirs, there's a certain type of interiorized of black people uh, that's beyond, you know, responses or public assumption of white people. But there's also social dimensions of blackness in some sense and ways in which our lives and our and our stories and our and our worlds are interpreted inside of the world that we live in. So when I step outside, 
you know, I'm, I'm black. I know I'm black, but there's also a narrative that the world perceives for me as it relates to my blackness within this country. Right. And so like someone may say, you know, I'm not an evangelical, I'm not an evangelical, but my performance and my embodiment is still very much mm. tied to this evangelical mm-hmm. project and it benefits the, that institution. And so I want to be the type of person that, you know, when people celebrate with me, I don't mind evangelicals coming to celebrate with me. I mean, I still got a lot of, I still got a lot of evangelical <laughs> friends, you know, I yeah. also mm-hmm. want people beyond that to be able to celebrate with me with the type of life that I've built. Well, this is a good segue because we want to celebrate your book and you've got a brand new book out and are doing your part to tell a different story. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your book and what you are really hoping readers will take away from it. So my book is at a 30,000 foot level. Uh, It it is me wrestling with the question, what does it mean to be black and American and Christian? Not black, comma, American, comma, and Christian, but black and Mm -hmm. American Mm -hmm. and Christian. And I kind of was reading Audre Lorde's uh, Zombie. She was like, I remember what it was like to be young and black Uh and gay and lonely. Uh, And she goes and wrestles with that question in beautiful narrative form where these identities intersect, you know, but they are also they represent subjective experiences that shape how I see the world, what I experience of the world and what the world does to me and things like that. And so I wanted to really wrestle deeply with that question. What does it mean to be black and American and Christian? You know, I wanted to write a book that was honest and vulnerable, that was creative and compelling, that did the work of like essay writing, but also that was very centered in a genre of memoir Mm -hmm. and narrative. So I tried to write something that, you know, when people walk away from this book, you know, they'll look at my story and they'll be able to walk through it and things like that. But, you know, they'll be able to be introduced to other people's stories and and wrestle with you know, the ways in which those identities, not just for me as a person, but also for so many people in our country and in our churches, that whether it's being Black, whether it's being American, whether it's being Christian, you know, those realities intersect in some of the most terrible, but also some of the most beautiful ways possible. I don't want to create a fantasy that people will walk away from and say, you know, if I complete this book, then it'll finally give me the proper framework to feel loved or or to feel worthy. Mm. You know, I hope that people walk away and and read the stories, you know, and say, you know, I need to really wrestle with that. Think about that, you know, and Mm -hmm. and there should be some type of worth and value that's generated from this text. But I wanted to write a book that says simply, you know, we black people, we don't just die. We Mm. don't just suffer. Yeah. You know, we're not just in pain, but we live. We dance. We build worlds. We shout. That's that's the that's the thing. That's the message. It's like Imani Perry. Racism is bad. Blackness, it is not. <laughs> that, oh, that's great. That was my thing. Yeah, yeah. We're so excited for the work that your book will assuredly do in the world. Um, I hope. I hope. I hope. We praying. I think you have really good reason to hope. Your book is shouting in the fire. An American epistle. It's out now. Thank you for your time, for your energy, for your attention today, Dante. We're really grateful that you joined us and recommend your book to our listeners. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I look forward to doing more work together in the future. 
uh, whether through writing or through podcasting or whatever. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. For great book recommendations and so much more, follow Dante Stewart on Twitter and Instagram, and be sure to check out his new book, Shoutin' in the Fire, An American Epistle. I don't know about you, Roxy. I now have a lot more books on my to-read list after talking to Dante. If only I didn't have a massively overdue book at the library that I checked out before the pandemic and have since sadly misplaced. That is tragic and kind of funny, and you must really be testing the namesake of the Patience Lion at the New York Public Library. Ooh, see what you did there. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward, and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Wyndham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks for listening. for listening. Did you have this much fun with Amy Grant? Oh, yeah, of course.